We are in our series today uh, in the book of Acts. If you're joining us for the first week and you're not familiar, we're going through the entire book of Acts, which is actually called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, we're breaking this up into three separate series. Uh, the first series is the first two chapters that we're calling the Church in Motion Unleashed. Then we're going to move to the Church in Motion um, uh, Unhindered. And then lastly is the Church in Motion unstoppable. And each one of those has a specific focus and a little bit of a different focus. Um, just to give you a little bit of catch up in case you've not been a part of what we've been doing. It is important for us to look at this book, especially during this time that we're in, in the life that we're in, in this season of time, I should say, because if we're not careful, we can forget where we came from. And when we forget where we came from, we can forget how we were created to be. You know, things change over time. Some of you are familiar with that really old traditional game called telephone. You remember that game years ago? You know, some of you are laughing. You're like, how old are you? You know, but it's, it's same thing today. Whisper down the lane, gossip. It doesn't matter what it is. What a message starts one way, 10 people later, it sounds completely different. And if we're not careful as the church today in our modern times, we may think the way Christianity is supposed to look and how we're supposed to work and live as followers of Christ should should look exactly like what we're doing today. But the truth of the matter is, unless we keep ourselves focused on the way Jesus birthed the church and what the church looked like in the first century, we can lose very significant things about how the church is supposed to be. And in the gospel of Luke that was written by Luke, he explained to us what Jesus did. And then when he wrote the book of Acts, which is actually volume two of the book of Luke, he didn't write about what Jesus did, but he said what Jesus will continue to do through his followers or through the church. And the New Testament church was birthed in the book of Acts. The awesome thing about the book of Acts and the New Testament church is that we're not talking about a church from the past. We're talking about the church of today. You see, the Old Testament talks about a nation of Israel that was before Christ. But the New Testament church in the book of Acts speaks about when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and what happened when they were empowered to walk as followers of Christ. That same instruction is available and relevant to us today. And that's why we're going back to look through this. Because if we get a good picture of what the church looked like in the first century, we can compare it against what we have today. And we can say, where are we on track and where have we lost our way? So week one, we looked at the church in motion and we call it the church in motion because God has created his people to constantly move forward. He said in Acts 1.8, he said, you will be my witnesses. Some of you know the scripture when he told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be empowered and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in uh, Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Which he meant was in your hometown in Jerusalem, in your region, in, in Judea. In your nation, including Samaria, and the ends of the earth means the rest of the world. What he was saying was, because my spirit will come upon you, the message of God's love and the message of Christianity will be spread to the entire world and it will begin through my church. That's why this is so important. So for us to understand how that happens, we need to look back at the different attributes and characteristics of the New Testament church. Week one, we looked at the church in motion and we said that church in motion, a church in motion is a church on mission. That if you don't remember what your mission is, you'll never get there, right? Someone once said, if you have no goals, you'll hit it every time. 
And it's the same thing. If we don't have a mission, if we lose sight of what our mission is, or if we confuse something else for the mission, we move in the wrong direction. The church was called to know the mission of God. Last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, we talked about the church in motion is the church empowered with the Holy Spirit. That we can't do anything on our own. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He draws us. He saves us. He empowers us with his Holy Spirit. We need to be available and surrendered to his will so that he can transform us to be the hands and feet of Christ. This is never about your ability or my ability. It's not about my skill or my degrees or my background. It has nothing to do with those things. It has to do with my humility and my ability to say, I need God. God change me so that I can be a light and a voice to help change others. That's what I love about Christianity. It's never about how much you can do to be established in God's grace. That's what Martin Luther was doing on October 31st. He was banging on that door saying, here are 95 problems I have with the Roman Catholic church, 95 issues that I have with them. I mean, that guy had some serious guts. Let me just say that. I mean, right. How many of us would have the guts to do that? But his whole motivation was not to divide the church and to create a reformation. It wasn't to just protest the Catholic church because he wanted to make them into something completely different or walk, walk away from them. He wanted to reform them. And when they refused to reform, the reformation movement began. The protest that he put on the door became the Protestant movement. And from that, we've seen over 500 plus denominations from the Protestant movement. That's where this all came from because someone stood up and said, this is not about what we can do in our strength. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross. This is powerful. And he gives us the strength of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as I said two weeks ago, is the presence of God in us. He is the promise of God to us and he is the power of God through us. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Today, we're going to spend the last few verses together in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to talk about one specific word, and the word is devotion. Today, the church in motion is devoted to following Jesus. Yes, we have a mission. Yes, we need to be empowered through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But the church in motion is devoted to following Jesus. And we're going to look at this, the, the end of Acts chapter 2 today, but I want to just picture or, or, or explain to you why devotion to following Jesus is so important. Because devotion to following Jesus is synonymous with experiencing spiritual growth and, and maturity. When we follow Jesus, we grow. When we become followers of Christ, I don't mean we've made a decision just to follow Jesus. When we choose to follow Jesus, we begin to look more like Jesus. We grow spiritually, which means the things that don't look like him in us begin to change. What means is what we thought was impossible becomes possible because we begin being who he's called us to be. We look more like Jesus. We grow spiritually. We grow closer to God as we love him. And we grow closer to others as we learn to love others. So we want to take a step back, and I want to show you first a picture of what the New Testament church looked like, the church that was devoted to following Jesus. We're going to start in verse 45 of Acts chapter 2. So we're going to look at the result before we look at the way way that they got there. So in verse 45 of Acts chapter 2, this is what Luke wrote about the New Testament church. He says, They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes 
and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now just just look at that verse or those verses with me just for a few moments and, and imagine if someone was going to present the Christian faith to you, what would it look like? When someone presents a relationship with Jesus to you, what, what does it look like? When people talk to you about God or maybe you speak with other people about God or what it means to be a follower of Christ, what does it look like in your words and what does it look like in your actions? If we look at this passage, and I'll read it again, the church, after they became followers of Christ, this is after the Holy Spirit was given to them at Pentecost, after they were in the upper room praying, they received the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is what happened. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Incredible amounts of generosity came from the birth church of Jesus Christ. They sold property and they gave every day, okay? And let me back up for a second on this, okay? I've heard people, people are good at perverting scripture, Okay, not, I'm not saying anybody here. I'm just saying when you listen to what people do, this is not a scripture that you use to justify a socialism or a socialistic platform. Okay, we're not talking about everyone had the same income. We're talking about all of the needs being met. You hear it? There's a difference. Everyone didn't have the same amount of income. Everyone had all of their needs met. Think about that. It's really important. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Think about the relationship and the camaraderie that existed during that time. They broke bread together in their homes. What did that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It just sounds like a giant buffet. A lot of fun. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. And look at the end result. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know what I love about this? There's nothing in here that talks about what they said. And everything is related to how they lived. And as a result of how they lived, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How is this possible? We spend our lives sometimes wondering, what are the right words I need to tell someone so that they become a follower of Christ? How do I effectively witness to someone or share my faith? What does it look like for me to really do this and to do it according to God's plan that honors him and is effective? And it's less about what we say, though we need to know what to say. But what we know in our head has to be evidenced by the way we live in our hearts, from our hearts. So what they did was what was attractive to the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So how did the church get to this place? This is very attractive to me. If someone was going to propose Christianity to me, and this is what I witnessed, that would be attractive to me. I mean, that is unlike a lot of what we see in our culture today. How did they get there? And how did they not just get there? How do they maintain this type of lifestyle and what they did? Now we can say, well, the Holy Spirit empowered them. Yes, that's true. But it's important for us to remember before we look at anything else, the destination, where you want to go, determines your direction. It determines how you get there. So if I want to go to California, I can't go east. Unless I'm in for a really, 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 really long trip. Right? Or if you're a flat earther, you'll never get there. Okay? And if you are, I love you, but really? 
Don't send me emails on that, please. Um, okay. Your destination does determine your direction, right? If your destination is to be a world-class athlete, you are going to train like a world-class athlete. If your destination is to have a specific career, you're going to understand the educational requirements necessary to get there. You're going to clear the path or drive the path that's required, blaze the path so that you can get to the place that you want to get. Where do we have to go? Or how do we have to, what do we have to do to get to a place like this as the church? What does it look like? And the answer to that is to be devoted to be devoted as a church, to be completely and utterly devoted to following Jesus. And the four things that we see in chapter 2, verse 42, that solidify this are these. Look at verse 42 with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common. What did they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves. I'm going to mention all four of them here, and then we're going to talk about them briefly. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Back up. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We're going to look at all four of these briefly this morning. These are the things they devoted themselves to, and then what you begin to see after that in verse 43 through the end of the chapter are the results of what began to happen. So we're looking at the cause, and we're looking at the results. What did they devote themselves to? Number one, they devoted themselves to, and these are so important because if we don't understand the foundations of these things, we are never going to get to the results. So let's talk about them briefly this morning. What are the four things they devoted themselves to? Number one, the apostles' teaching. This is today for us the word of God. When the apostles were teaching, they were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did, and they shared what Jesus did, and they also spoke and taught from the Old Testament. Today we have the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Gospels, the New Testament. They're all considered part of the word of God. And the teaching that they refer to is the Holy Scripture, the inspired word of God. Now, why is this important today for followers of Christ in this day? to be devoted to the word of God, number one, or say the only main reason I think the word of God grounds us in truth and in understanding. The word of God grounds us in truth and in understanding. And when I say truth and understanding, it's really understanding is broken out into two areas. Biblical or godly understanding is rooted in truth and grace. When we understand the word of God, we understand the foundation of truth, but that we also have a greater understanding meaning that we experience grace. How often have you met someone in this world that claims they know the word of God and they're very good at proclaiming truth? And what I mean by that are judgmental truths. They're still true, but they're absent of grace. You know anyone like that? I bet you do. The world looks for people like that to put on national television to say this is what Christianity looks like. Truth. Harsh, condemning, judgmental, fist-shaking, fingers-pointing. That's what God is about. That's what they say. But no, the word of God grounds us in truth. And understanding means discernment in how to demonstrate truth and grace combined. Remember in John 1, it says Jesus came in the fullness of truth and the fullness of what? Grace. He came in both. 
So we always need to be people that are rooted in truth, but we need to understand that the purpose of truth is to be presented in a manner of grace. That's why Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Not condemnation. Gentleness and respect. So the word of God grounds us in truth. The word of God grounds us in understanding. Let me just show you a couple scriptures to reinforce why I think this is important for us. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, Paul says that all scripture, and he refers to the Old New Testament, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I've broken that down over the years to look at it a little bit more uh, simplistic to say all scripture, the word of God, is useful for understanding what is right. Okay, we don't live in a world right now where that is something that everyone agrees to. Amen. What is right? What is wrong? When you're wrong, how to get right again. And then once you're right, how to stay right. So I say, what is truth? What is right? What is wrong? How to get right and how to stay right. That's what God's word is about. We don't live in a world right now where people all agree to that. We don't. I'm going to pull this up because I had a conversation with someone earlier this week and I thought it's very appropriate when they forwarded to me this, this information. And I'm doing this off on the, on the fly, so just, uh, just give me a minute here. Had a conversation with somebody. This person that I talked to had a conversation with somebody and he wrote me this in response. He said, hey, I was talking to a Christian the other day and I made the comment that we need to look at the gospel and not and let that lead us and guide us. Their response was, I don't know about that. <laughs> wow. You don't know about that? Now, this shouldn't surprise us though. There is there are degrees of what people think the scriptures should look like. There is a movement called progressive Christianity, which is taking the message of scripture and changing it and twisting it so that there are some things that make sense to them and others that they go, no, that doesn't make sense. And we're going to ignore that. Or we're going to apply this in a different way. If we are not grounded in understanding truth, how can we understand what's right? We need to be people that understand truth. And I don't say that where we stand on a platform and stomp our foot and clench our fists. I'm saying, guys, How do we know what to teach? How do we know how to live? How do we know what God's purpose, plan, and will is for life if we don't know God's word? You know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day when um, I was on sabbatical this summer and I I got an Audible account, you know, to download um, audiobooks. And, um, like, you have to pay for that. (laughs) You're like, yeah, I know. And I was thinking about this when we were talking about this yesterday. You have to pay every month for these books if you want to download them and you get credits, etc. And I thought about that and I said, you know what? Because I was joking. I said, well, maybe I should download the Bible so I read it. You know? And I was just laughing about that. But then I stopped for a moment and I said, you can get this book for free. Think about this. You have to pay for all the other ones. But you can get this one for free on an app. And listen to God's word. And that was not always the case in the world that we live in. God's inspired word is readily available to everyone who wants it in this world. You can open it. You can read it. You can listen to it. People give their lives for it in this world. Because the truth of God's word is just that. The truth of God's word. It's not just knowledge. It is a weapon to fight against lies 
and counterfeit truths. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation, when he talks about our armor in Christ, the helmet of salvation, and look, the sword of the Spirit. It's the only weapon, which is what? The Word of God. There's a reason why God's Word is so powerful. There's a reason why Jesus quoted the Word of God when he was tempted three times in the wilderness. There's a reason why the scriptures continue to push people or to encourage people to know the word over everything else because the world around us is going to continue to challenge us to learn their version of truth. And we're seeing this migration. I've said this so many times and some of you may say, you keep saying this, I'm kind of tired of hearing of it. Well, you know what? I'm going to keep saying it because it's the truth. It's the truth. Who is our foundation of truth in this world? The culture in the world around us keeps telling us that truth is relative, that it's not about a God-centered truth. It's a man-centered truth. And things that used to be God-centered that are now man-centered are man-centered because the God-centered stuff is irrelevant, outdated, or just you're just not educated. You're ignorant. And some of these things we've walked away from because we need to, we need to serve ourselves more than we need to serve the king. And God wants us to be rooted. So you know what I do many times? People are really, people are really good at proclaiming what truth should be and, really, and shouldn't be when they point fingers at people. But I, I love having the conversations with people when they go, well, I believe this or I believe that. And I go, that's great. What does God's word say about that? What does God's word say about that? Instead of me telling you the answer, let's just go figure it out. I'm not arrogant enough to think I know all the answers. Of course I don't. I'm only 40 years old. And I don't know. I don't know. I'll be double my age should God keep me on this earth and I'm not going to know all the answers. None of us know all the answers, but we're supposed to work through our salvation in fear and trembling, have dialogue with each other, and stay rooted in God's truth. So instead of saying, this is the answer, say, let's open up scriptures and see what God says about that. We live in a world now, you know, and I'm not mocking this. I'm just saying, be wary of this, where our spiritual maturity of understanding God's word has been reduced to the verse of the day that pops up on our phone. I'm being honest here. Is that bad? Of course not. It's a little nugget of truth. But if that's what you do to get, to get truth, and you think that's going to supply you everything that you need, why don't you try getting, when they used to have DVDs, maybe you can, down, you can stream these now, go to any movie that you're interested in and go to 62 minutes and 31 seconds in the middle of the, of the movie and watch 20 seconds of it and think that you know what's going on. This is what we do with scripture now. People go, let me just take this little nugget and that just makes me feel, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You know what he's talking about in that passage? Suffering. Going through every difficult thing. Why? Because in the midst of our suffering, God's power makes us strong. In the midst of our suffering, there is joy through perseverance. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying, you know what? I want that Lambo and in Jesus' name, I can get that Lambo. People interpret things like this. And all I'm just saying is if we don't know God's word, we're going to be misled. So it's not just enough to memorize it. It's an, we need to understand what it means to pray for discernment. So the first thing we're talking about this morning is the apostles' teaching. That's what the church was first committed to. The second thing this morning is fellowship. We're going to talk about fellowship. And why is fellowship important? Because fellowship unites the church in authentic community. They were devoted to fellowship. Why? Because they wanted to be, and they knew it would unite them in authentic community. The word that he uses here is koinonia. And some of you have heard this Greek word before. It's listed 19 times throughout the New Testament. 12 of those times, it is translated as the word fellowship. It also means sharing and contributing and participation. But the lion's share of them all refer to the word fellowship. 
And fellowship is not just a group of people that hang out. It's not just, hey, say hi to somebody before you sit down during the rest of the service, during our greeting. That's not really fellowship. Real fellowship, specific fellowship, it's the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate associate or a group. It's especially used with regard to marriage and churches. That's what fellowship is. It's an intimate connection with others. And it's used in the context of marriage and the context of churches. And last I heard, I'm not intimately connected with anybody when I greet someone on a Sunday morning and have a seat. It's a nice way to connect with someone and say hello, but that's not biblical fellowship. That's not what they were committed themselves to, committing themselves to. Let me give you a little bit of an example of two areas in the New Testament where this word is used and how powerful it is. In Paul, uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and look, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and then so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is he saying? I don't want to know Christ with my mind. I want to experience Christ in my life. I don't want to sympathize. I want to empathize. Are you with me when we're talking about that? There's a difference. Sympathy says, I'm sorry for you. You know, I've heard people say sympathy is like throwing someone a life jacket or a life preserver when they're drowning off the water in the water. Empathy is diving into the water to get them. Sympathy says, I feel bad for you. What can I do? Empathy says, I feel your hurt. I feel your pain. You look through the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul talk about all the pain and the suffering he wrestles through and the struggles and the trials. And then he adds on top of that, the burden he feels for all of the churches that he knows. It is a weight. Why? Not because he sympathizes or because he had lunch at someone's house and shook someone's hand, but because he recognized that they were a community. See the difference? That's what genuine biblical community looks like. They are a community When one bleeds, they all bleed. When one grieves, they all grieve. When one is joyful, they're all joyful for the individual. That's what biblical community is supposed to look like. And it could happen with a handful of people or it could happen with thousands. But it's an intimate experience for us to be together. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul also writes to the church in Corinth. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Okay? For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? And then he says, or what fellowship, same word, can light have with darkness? Light and darkness don't go together. If you're light, you hang out with light. If you're dark, you hang out with dark. This isn't a talk to people that don't know Jesus. Of course not. What he's saying is the foundation of what you're made up of is the same. You're unified in a way that you have the same DNA, you have the same, you are, as Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body. You're all connected. Your DNA is someone else's DNA is someone else's. And you know what the DNA is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is why, I love this, but this is why you can go to any other place in the world and meet someone you've never known before. And when you find out that they're a believer or a follower of Jesus, there is an in- instant connection you know Jesus. Not, I go to church. You have a relationship with Christ. I do. I have a relationship with Christ. And it opens up a door because it's like finding a long lost brother or sister. 
You know those stories you hear? I've known people, friends of ours in our church and outside of our church that find out years later into their adult years that they have other siblings. And when they meet them, it's like, it's a beautiful thing because there's a connection that they were linked through genetics and blood. And they're like, you, you're part of me and I'm part of you. That's what true fellowship looks like. That we walk together, we live together, we celebrate together, we suffer together. There has been a direct attack on fellowship in the Christian church in the last two years. It's existed before, but it's gotten worse over the last two years. People keep talking about pandemic stuff, pandemic. Well, you know what? That's going to come and it will eventually finally go away. We might see bits and pieces of it in different variants or whatever, but can I tell you, I think the pandemic of fellowship within the church community still stays and needs to be addressed. There is a pandemic that we saw happen where people thought it was acceptable and okay to disengage from everyone else for an extended period of time. And I'm not talking about being wise and using safety. Nothing. I'm not talking about that. We need to be wise. We need to use boundaries. We need to be careful. I'm saying today, where people today are still okay with being out of relationship with other fellows, followers of Christ, because they think they can continue to grow and be healthy without having this type of deep, connected fellowship. Someone posted on social media, I don't know when, but I started seeing it this week, and I got a hold of it, and I said, that is really powerful, and I'm going to use it. And I don't know who the person was, but I didn't say it, so you can't tell me I'm taking credit for it. But I am going to say what it says, because it's pretty influential. They wrote this about fellowship and relationship. They said, as church attendance numbers fade across the nation and online services become very convenient, it's important to remember why church attendance for you and your family matters so much. They said, you can't serve from your sofa. You can't have community of faith on your sofa. You can't experience the power of a room full of believers worshiping together on your sofa. And it says, Christians aren't consumers. We are contributors. We don't watch. We engage. We give, we sacrifice, we encourage, we pray for laying hands on the hurting. We pray by laying hands on the hurting. We do life together. The church needs you, and you need the church. Powerful. Isn't that powerful? Let's rethink what we're doing in this world and recognize that the power of division is incredibly influential, and the church needs to recognize true fellowship is for us to reconnect and not sympathize, but to empathize because we are one body under one God. The third thing we're going to talk about this morning is the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, why is this important? And I'll explain why. Because the breaking of bread reminds us of our need for a Savior. Now, you might associate breaking of bread with food and having a meal together, and that is true in part. But the actual definition and what he's first talking about here is practicing and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. They're, they're having the Lord's Supper. Some of you know the Lord's Supper from the Gospels. It was the last meal that Jesus had before he was betrayed and crucified, and he broke bread. And we do this as a church every month. We do communion together the first Sunday of every month where we take a piece of bread and we take a cup with juice and we remember the broken body of Christ and we remember the shed shed blood of Christ. And we do this in a significant way. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, or as often that you do this, remember me. And we don't do it so we can just remember Jesus. We do it because we need to remember what Jesus did for us. See the difference? 
Remember me doesn't mean, oh yeah, I remember that guy, Jesus. No, remember what the broken bread means. I'm sorry. Remember what the broken bread stands for. Remember what the shed blood of Christ stands for. And when we do that, it reminds us of something, our need for a savior. And when the church continues to gather and breaks bread together and celebrates through communion together and practices that, we are reminded of something, which is we are incapable of saving ourselves. I am incapable of saving myself. I think it's funny sometimes when there are people um, who put spiritual leaders or spiritual people in any spiritual position on pedestals to think that they're above certain things. And I laugh sometimes when I hear people say things about myself when they say, well, I don't believe you'd ever, you never would struggle with that or you would certainly never do that or how could you ever, you would never think something like that. And I chuckle because I'm like, you just need to talk to my wife and she'll tell you that that's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. It's dangerous when we think as believers that we become elevated above others. Communion has a way of leveling the playing field, church. It hurts me when I hear people say they could never, ever come to a church or they feel condemned and judged by Christians because they're never going to be good enough to experience what it is they hear they should experience. And when I hear things like that, I'm reminded of something every day is that I am no better than someone else who doesn't know Jesus. I'm just forgiven and saved. I'm no different. You hear what I'm saying? You and I are no different. If you've known Jesus all of your life or you just made a decision to follow him two minutes ago, you are saved. You are forgiven, but you're not better than anybody else. I'm not better than anyone else. And when we think we're better than others, we need to go back and we need to practice communion as a body. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, hey, before you do this, you better make sure you're right with other people. Examine your heart, he says. And you can go and read it another time in 1 Corinthians 11. Examine your heart to make sure that what you're saying and what you're doing align and make sense because you're getting ready to remember the shed blood of Christ and the broken body of Jesus who died for one. No, he died for all. And because he died for all, you're no better than the person sitting next to you. And if you think you are, you need to come to a place of repentance. That's what communion brings us to, a place of repentance. Because we actually get to see who Jesus is when we practice communion. Luke 24, 31, 30, 30, 31, and 35 says this. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. That's what Jesus did. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and then he vanished from their sight. Look at verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This happened after the resurrection. That he sat at the table after the resurrection with them. He broke bread. He gave it to them. And during that time of communion, they saw Jesus clearly. And I tell you, one of the most beautiful opportunities we have as the Christian church today as we break bread together is to see Jesus clearly through that experience. And when we see Jesus more clearly, we recognize who we are without him and how much more we need him. And we see the person next to us and we go, they need him just as much as I do. I'm not greater or less than them. I both, I need Christ. They need Christ. Let's go after him together. And it creates another degree of unity. You with me? 
So important to do this together. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The last thing I want to mention this morning is prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And why prayer is so important is because prayer changes us to become more like Jesus. Prayer changes us so we become more like Jesus. It is a matter of dependence. When we pray, honestly and authentically, we are depending on God, not on ourselves. We become less self-sufficient and more Christ-sufficient. But it's not about what we can do in our own strength, but it's about who we trust more. Do I trust me and my abilities and my strength to make this happen, or am I continuing to lay myself down to God? And that's what prayer does. Prayer brings us to a place where we humbly allow God to till the soil of our hearts so that he can continue to show us our need for him. He showed this through his actions and through his words. Jesus said his father's house would be a house of what? Prayer. He modeled a lifestyle through prayer. In Luke 5, it says he often withdrew to places and prayed. He even taught his followers how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, and many of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, where he teaches us how to pray, not as a formula, but because of the principles that are in there. What is the solution to the world that we live in today? Can I tell you, the wars, the division, the verge of financial ruin people are in right now, they talk about the chaos, the death and destruction. What is the solution to all of that? Man wants to tell you, mankind wants us all to believe that the answer to that is in the right party, the right political party, or the right policies in place, or the right structures. And those things are not bad. They can be very bad if they're wrong and not outside of God's will. But those themselves will not fix anything. If you don't believe me, go back to the Old Testament where the law of Israel was defined by God. And you know what they did over and over and over again? They continued to break the law. God gave them the law and said, this is what's going to work. If you follow it, I promise you, you will be fruitful, you will be blessed, and all the nations will know who I am through you. And you know what they did? They broke it, and they broke it, and they broke it, and they broke it. And they came to the place where they said, this is impossible to follow and not break. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, now you're understanding. You can never follow the law in your own strength because you're imperfect. That's why you need a savior. That's why I had to come so that the law the law would be fulfilled through me because prayer makes us more like him and it demonstrates our dependence on God. Billy Graham said this. He said, to get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. And you know what? You can apply that truth to your neighborhoods, to your homes, to your families, and to yourself. To get yourself back on your feet you need to first get on your knees. To get your family back on its feet, you need to first get down on your knees. And the principle applies. Prayer is the foundation that changes us to make us more like Christ. So I'm sharing all these things with you this morning, and I want to give you just a brief illustration of why I think this is so important. And maybe you don't need the illustration, but I like to think in pictures. So here it is. Okay, here we go. Don't get too excited. This is a box. Jesus said, as well as a lot of the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers, that he is the cornerstone of our lives. Okay? And if you're familiar with the cornerstone, basically it was the most important stone in any building. It was the one they spent the most time shaping, creating, making it as perfect as possible. Everything was built off the cornerstone. For purposes of our illustration, I'm going to make that synonymous with the foundation. 
As he says in Matthew 7, there is a rock that we build on. You know what I'm talking about? So he is the foundation that we are born or that we are based on, that we build our lives on. Jesus, that's him. He is our foundation. So if he is our foundation, there are now four key things that the church is supposed to devote themselves to. Okay? The apostles' teaching is considered the word of God. Okay? Whoopsie. The word of God. I knew that was going to happen. The word of God is the apostles' teaching. Okay? We already talked about that. What was the second one that we talked about? Remember? Fellowship. Right. We talked about fellowship. Fellowship was another one. What was the third one? The breaking of bread is a, is a third one. I'm sorry. Second and third one. And the fourth one is prayer. There's our fourth one right here that didn't want to stay in its hole. Each one of these are like a wall that God wants us to build in our lives, okay? Not so that we can keep everyone out and we can be individualistic, okay? But if you will, the church is preserved so that anything that stays in can't be attacked from the outside. If God is bringing truth into our lives, it's preserved when all four walls are being built. If God is bringing fellowship into our lives, unity, it is preserved when all four areas of our lives are being built and each wall is being built so that the building that's on Jesus Christ is equally being dealt with and equally being prioritized. Here's what happens in our church today, in the churches today. We need the word of God, Pastor Paul. Oh yes, we do. I agree with that. We need to read our Bibles. We need to be studying. We need to be, you fill in the blank. Absolutely. We need to be about that. Okay. Why haven't you spent any time with anyone over the last two months, four months, six months, 12 months? You know what? I mean, I have my online group of people and I can do what I think I need to do. I don't really need to hang out with people. And what we have is a form of fellowship, but there's a gaping hole in the middle of it. And if I'm the enemy looking to attack the church, I'm not coming to you through the word of God. I'm coming to you through what? Lack of fellowship. Oh, you think you're going to be okay? Watch what I'm going to do while you're isolated from the rest of the church. You see where I'm going with this? See how this works? This applies to every one of these areas. You could say that and go, well, it's not necessarily that. I mean, I am hanging out with people. That's fine. Why do I need to take communion together? Okay, so you know the word of God. You're actually sharing life with other people. But there's an arrogance and a haughtiness to you where you go like, I'm better than these people. Well, with the breaking of bread and communion being removed from our lives, we start to think that we are better than other people. We stop, to re- we stop to remember, or we fail to remember, that without Christ, we're no different than anyone else. That we need to have an attitude of humility. So we need to reestablish the need to have the breaking of bread and communion in our church communities. This one is very powerful. And this is where a lot of church people and Christians, myself included, can fail. Maybe you know the word of God. Maybe you spend time in his word. Maybe you know it's important to share life with people through community groups or to have life with other families and have relationships. Maybe you enjoy practicing communion together and you come to a place of repentance. But you know what? You have a really empty prayer life. You know what happens when we have an empty prayer life? We start making religion and relationship with God about what we can do in our own strength and not what he can do in his. I'm working, I'm trying, I'm doing everything. Why isn't anything happening? And I think sometimes God wants us to say, because your prayer life is in wanting. 
There is a gaping hole there that the enemy says, okay, if you don't want to pray and you don't want to focus on God, then what you're going to do is you're going to continue to rely on yourself to fix the problems instead of trusting in God to fix them. And instead of letting him change us, we try to change ourselves. Make sense? This is what it means to be devoted. In 2021, this is what it meant to be devoted when the church was born. Our worship team is going to come as we get ready to close in a few moments. But I just want to restate these things, and I want to ask you, would you please take a few moments and ask yourself, where are you in this journey? Okay, And I want to speak first to people that would fall into this category where their foundation is not Jesus Christ. You are building on something, and if there was an initial on this foundation, it would probably be your own. Because if you're not following Jesus, can I tell you, if you're not following Jesus, you are following yourself. If I've not given my life to Christ, then I'm living for myself, which means the J is no longer Christ. It's whatever my name is. What is your foundation? Can I tell you, before we talk about all the other ones, this is where it all needs to begin. Do you have a relationship with Christ? You need your foundation on Jesus Christ and him alone. So for those who are followers of Christ, where are the gaps? What are you wrestling with? I believe in my heart that all of us are strong in some and weak in others. We may be strong in the word, but we may struggle with genuine fellowship. Genuine fellowship. Who are the people that you're real with? Who are the people that grieve with you, that bleed with you? I tell people all the time about this. Um, if you want to, be a, want to have a friend, you need to be a friend. Do you grieve with this? Do you struggle with us when we struggle? When you see a need, are you compelled to meet that need? Or are you individualistic and you're on your own? Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe fellowship is your problem. Maybe you wrestle with, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than those people. And I tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. And I'm reminded of that many times. You know, when I see some of the crazy stuff that people do in this world, I look at some of that and I'm like, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not like that person. I'm glad I'm like me and not like that person. I feel like at that point, like God knocks on my heart and says, you were and you still are outside of me. Right? You're no better. I'm the one that makes you better. You still wrestle with sinfulness. I'm the one that forgives you. So stop looking at yourself better than others. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe you're saying, I come to church, I serve, I'm involved, I read my Bible, I get together with people, but you know, I have a really weak prayer life and I'm just not very good at strengthening this. I need help. Because if you don't have a a strong prayer life, you're not going to let God change you and transform you. You're going to do it in your own strength. People that struggle with unforgiveness in their heart, people that pound their chest and say, I've done this before and it doesn't work, many times those people need to spend more time in depth of prayer. Because if you struggle with forgiving someone, pray for them. Because when you pray for them, God does something to your heart that you can't do yourself. There is no counseling in the world that is going to help you get out of an unforgiving heart. I believe if you're not willing to pray for someone, not because you're going to be their best friend again, but because forgiveness isn't about what that person needs from you. It's about what you need to release in yourself. Don't do it in your own strength. Pray and seek what God wants to do in your life. I'm going to ask, and the team's going to just sing this song, and I'm just going to ask you, would you please just take a few moments and reflect 
as we close today. And I want to ask you again, are you a follower of Christ? Is your foundation on Jesus Christ? If it's no, why not let today be the day when you can follow Christ? If you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, then I want you to come during the worship time or after the worship time. I want you to talk to someone who's up here and say, I want to choose to follow Christ today. What do I do? Or if one of these areas are the gaps in your life, use this time to spend some time and talk to the Lord about it. Are there practical things you can do to change it? Sure. Daily devotionals, scripture, making a disciplined thing with accountability so that you actually spend more time in the word. You don't have to always read it. You can listen to it. If fellowship is the area that you're weak in and you need relationship with people, have you considered joining a community group? Well, I'm not really into that kind of thing. Okay, well, maybe that's too big for you. Do you have one or two people that you're reaching out to? Well, I'm waiting for people to reach out to me. I'll get back to what I said earlier. If you want to have a friend, you need to be a friend. And God doesn't call the church to sit on the, guide, on the sidelines. He calls us to get out there and to serve and to love. If you struggle with arrogance and pride, then understanding our need for repentance might mean that you have to take a few moments and just quietly confess to the Lord. And if prayer is your struggle, well, you can join a community group. You could spend some time devoted in a morning or an afternoon or an evening and praying. You could come to our Tuesday night meetings that we have every Tuesday night from 7 to 8.30 where we pray. There are different things that you can do to develop these things. What is God calling you to do to build your life so that when you look at your life, you recognize that you're built on nothing else but Christ alone? Father, I just pray this morning that as we take a few moments and reflect upon your word and this message, that we would be grounded in truth, full of understanding, and full of your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.